the JW Marriott Hotel in fabulous downtown Los Angeles. It's everybody's favorite time of the week, the Promoter 101 Podcast, with your hosts, Dan Steiny Steinberg and Luke Balls to the Wall Pierce, interviewing Wayne Forte and Charlie Levy. Get ready. Get set. Steinberg, welcome to Promoter 101. We're coming to you live from Polestar. We want to give a shout out to Craig Newman for recording our theme song. He is a funky mofo. It's fucking 9.30 in the morning. Anyway, we got a live crowd, so this will be fun. We really want to interact with you guys. We're here. We're going to pull this off. Luke, how the fuck are you feeling? I... I the velvety voice of Luke Pierce. You get to listen to this all morning. So thank everybody for coming out to Let's Drink Five last night at Exchange LA. I had a fantastic time, if you can't tell by my voice already. Uh, we're going to be joined a little bit later today by Entourage Talents, Wayne Forte. Legend. And legend. Uh, and, and Mr. Charlie Levy from Stateside Presents. Future legend. If you're in the room today, we're going to welcome comments and questions. We want this to be an interactive experience, but just remember, this is being recorded for a podcast, so if you don't have a microphone in front of you, please just raise your hand. We'll bring one over to you, ask a question later, but if you don't have a microphone in front of you, the internet can't hear you, so please. It really sounds like dead air, but today with the mic, Jeff White from Ticket Fly was our host today with the mic, so just raise your hand. He'll bring you a mic, and you'll get to be on the podcast, but say your name and your job. Fucking Zinc's already heckling. Awesome. Fantastic. Where's Vince Bannon? <laughs> but feel free to take p- p- pictures and use the hashtag Promoter101. You can tag Dan at the Jew on Twitter, and I'm W. Luke Pierce on Twitter, and our Promoter 10, Promoters101 is our official Twitter hashtag, so please tag us. So how many of you have heard of agents versus promoter? Sh- show of hands? That's a pretty the internet size. can probably see all those hands, huh? Yeah, that's a pretty good size for this room. So, Dan, those guys are great. Do you actually know who they are? No, but I mean, it's, it's got to be somebody at like C3 or AC or, you know, Bowery, one of those guys that are buying festivals and buying from clubs to theaters to arenas because they're buying some really hip stuff. And at the same time, they're doing a lot of volume. And that's the promoter side. The agent side, you got to think Windish, Paradigm, Billions, High Road. That's some really hip stuff, too. So not quite sure. I got a couple ideas of who it is, but everyone seems to be ni- denying it up and down. I, I, I thought Joe Atanian, maybe, but he uh, adamantly denied it. And, uh, Houston Powell, Sam Hunt, those are all names been thrown around from, from Paradigm of who that is. If you're not familiar with what agent versus promoter is, the Tumblr account, it's a meme-esque account of the, the day-to-day accountings of the life of an agent and a, a promoter, which is a, a pretty hilarious uh, recounting of some things that are very uh, contemporary in the business. So, And those guys are clearly here because they've been posting some really funny gems from Polestar this week, so I'm curious. We invited them to do the uh, 
to come do the podcast over the phone through their, uh, their account in Instagram. We messaged them, hoping they'd come out and we could do it over the phone, disguise their voices. And, you know, we're still, I think that'd be great. I'm still wondering why we scheduled this or they scheduled us at 9.30 in the morning. This is ridiculous. So I think Polestar hates you, Luke. It's, it's true. So why don't we jump into do, uh, the news from last week? Cool. Uh, maybe we get Dave Brooks to join us and do some news from Amplified Magazine. Dave Brooks, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Proud new papa. Give it up for him. 12 days? 14, 15. 15 days old. Thank you. Have you slept? Thank you. Oh, you know, we had the baby uh, in the room last night. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's different kind of party to stay up all night with a screaming toddler. E equally delusional right now? You, you see how fast you can fill up one of those... Uh, you see how fast you can fill up that tiny bathroom trash can with diapers. It's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty incredible. Let's poop one. All right. <laughs> so uh, what's going on in the news, buddy? Well, you know, the big story this week um, at Amplify for us was the, uh, the fi we finally heard the, uh, the details of AEG Live purchasing um, the Bowery Presents. Um, so... As, you, as everyone remembers, like last April, I think, uh, you know, Ray Waddell broke the story when he was uh, at Billboard. And He's in the room, dude. Yeah. Is hey, he? Ray. There he What's is. Up, Ray? Right there. So he didn't hear much about it for months, but um, I, I've never uh, doubted Ray once. And, and hey, last week they came out and uh, officially announced that they were, they did the deal. So. 50% stake in the company. The number I heard tossed around was $40 million, and now Bowery is part of Team AG. They're going to open this new venue in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Steel. Uh, that, this is kind of an interesting name. What do you think of that one? Uh, I'm really curious to see what those guys do. I mean, Glancy is an icon. I love Jomo. Now that they're working with the Luba and all Adam Lear, it's like the concept of all those guys in that Jersey, New York market together. I think there's, they're, they're going to be a powerhouse to reckon with. And with their festival, Panorama, and you got to let on that team, it's like, dude, it's, it's a heavy-hitting batting order, man. Well, you know, AC, C3, Union, I mean, there's a ton of independent roll-ups here, and we'll put Dan on the spot. Are you Emporium, you and Jason Zink, are you guys in talks with anybody right now? Does anybody have a checkbook here? <laughs> uh, I mean, we've gotten some calls, but I, I think we have an independent entrepreneur spirit where, and I say fuck a lot at these things, so I don't know. For the moment, we're having a good time doing what we're doing. Well, it was interesting because they, 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 they told me that um, to get the deal done, to, to get, like, uh, you know, Jomo over, they, they, they flew in Paul Tillett, Lumusina, and Barry Marshall to kind of show them, you know, they, they can keep their entrepreneurial ways, and so... It was, it was a long courtship. I think those each like venue, you know, has multiple investors in the Bowery and like just untangling all that. We had uh, Jay Masian on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about how complex that deal was to cut. There were so many different owners of some of the clubs and some of the other properties, and getting it all together and figuring it out took a long time. So once they decided it was going to happen, then they had to figure out, okay, are you still going to be involved in the club? Are we buying the club? Are you buying the other side of the club? It was a whole big to do because there were so many yeah. pieces on how that that built, but those guys are going to be a powerhouse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, they are a powerhouse in New York. They, they're calling they're themselves cool. the biggest promoter in New York now, so well, you know. <laughs> Gangs of New York, AEG. Exactly. <laughs> so what else? We got, talk, we got more New York stuff. I thought it was interesting. You know, Bloomberg first reported this, that the Islanders are going to 
probably be leaving the Barclays Center um, at the end of either 17 or, or 18 season. Um, it was interesting, that, you know, the deal they had where they were basically covering the team for $50 million, and I think they just looked at it. And, you know, after only two years at the Barclays Center, because remember, the Islanders were at Nassau Coliseum, the, they're looking like they're going to leave just the Barclays Center feels like they can make more money doing uh, concerts and whatever else as opposed to 40 uh, hockey games that are half attended. I think they're bluffing. They're just trying to get a better rent deal out of Sean. I think it's going to be okay. I get faith. You think so? Well, Lightwicky is... No, I think they're fucked. This is gone, man. Uh, I'll say, well, Lightwicky is... uh, Part of the story I was reading is he's advising the... um, the team, so it could be a negotiation tactic. Who knows? He's a big deal, that Tim Lywicky guy. I, yeah, he is. He's, made, he's he's definitely moving and shaking things around here. So, very cool. What's that, what else is going on out there? Well, you know, finally, we got, it seems like we have another New York story as well. Um, you know, big arrest. This a big indictment came down with uh, Dan Melly, and um, he's a longtime Manhattan promoter. Uh, he did like these. He did the Billy Joel shows uh, on Long Island on Social, and it was called like Social. I forget the exact name. And basically. You know, he raised something like $80 million to buy up 35,000 Hamilton tickets. And it turns out he, in kind of classic Ponzi scheme fashion, he is accused of taking $50 million of it and just paying back old investors and, um, you know, pocketing some money and, and uh, whatever. I don't and know so how you can get 50 million tickets. I can't even get a pair to that fucking thing. It's been sold out for weeks. Well, I don't know either. I mean, he's been, he's been saying, he, you know, the part of, if you read the, if you read the indictment, what's interesting is that part of it, he was talking about how he, he, he had this deal with a producer from the show. And so, you know, it, why this story doesn't just die with him and why it kind of drags on is because he's part, uh, he was on the board of DreamTix, DTI, which is one of these big consolidation firms, which, you know, takes 10 to $20 million ticketing positions, right? And so this was potentially going to be their Hamilton deal. They had all these sports packages where they're buying up thousands of seats. And so now, um, I'm watching carefully kind of what's the collateral damage on this. Like, what's the, the downfall? They've already suspended him. They've hired, they hired this high-priced PR guy who I have to, you know, deal with who hammers me on every word I use. And Well, it's awesome because if you're talking about Ponzi schemes, it puts you in that category in this industry with Jack Utsick. And, right. you know, that's, that's something you just got to be excited about, man. It's like you've reached that level of <laughs> scumbag. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, once you get in, you're, you're a 10-figure scumbag too, right? It's like, oh, Jesus. Anyway, what else is going on, buddy? Well, you know, this, so here at um, you know, here at um, Polestar, sorry, Polestar Live. I'm you know, here you to help. Some, you see some folks around. I noticed, um, you know, a few new um, a few new jobs uh, popping up. I saw David Marcus from Scorebig, and he's he's popped up at Ticketmaster, which I thought was pretty interesting. You know, I'm oh. no clear what he's going to be doing yet, but he's been around for a long time. I saw some folks from Ticketmaster. That, I mean, it sounds like he's stepping in to, to kind of stand over Zishan, uh, who heads Artist Services there, which is a really interesting role. That's kind right. of like a, a continued development in, in that space for those guys. So really interesting that they, they put him in that place, you know? There's yeah. acquisitions on, on the applause side of things, too. I don't know if you're familiar with Kieran's uh, company, Applause. <clears throat> right. Was uh, recently acquired by uh, Azoff Management. They're shutting down their pre-sale services 
for non-Azov clients. So some consolidation, some moves and shakes in that part of services, third-party ticketing space. Yeah, I mean, the, the event price bought ticket, Briz, I want to say. Briz, right? yeah. Yeah, in... Um, in the Netherlands, and so um, it's sort of amazing, like how much uh, consolidation can exist. How much it seems like there's a there's a there's a race between how many companies can pop up, and how many can people can buy them as fast as possible, right? Yeah. And so, um, so and, and I, I guess I'm saying anything else, you know? If anybody, obviously, how, did, how I was able to go to your guys' party. How did that go last night? No, exchange. the party was good. We uh, had the best numbers we've ever had, but that place was really cool. I didn't realize it was the original Los Angeles Stock Exchange but that place was cool as shit. I had a great time, and we saw some great people come out. I think my favorite part was that you couldn't get cell phone reception inside that building, so everybody was kind of like locked in a vault last night and, and couldn't even text across the room. It was pretty cool. Very rare for the business. Well, that is a, that is a very cool old commodities exchange, and um, you know, and, and if you, I don't, you, you you're not, that was on spring. If you also went to um, Tom Windish's party at Paradigm, you know, that was on spring as well. And that I'm telling you is the next part of LA that I, I think is there's, on the, the up and coming. What do you think? Yeah, Dim Mock. There's a bunch of stuff that's coming there. You know, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of LA, has made that like the, the cool place to be. So they've really incentivized businesses, including Paradigm and Windish, and uh, you know, a, a bunch of cool shops that are down there. Tim Mock, Steve Aoki's record company down there. So, very cool. We know you got to go catch uh, Good to Your Own panel, but thank you yeah. very much for stopping by. Give, oh, no give it up problem. for Dave Brooks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thank you guys. So, in other news, legendary agent Trip Brown has moved to Nashville to uh, join New Frontier Touring with Paul Lohr. That is an amazingly cool combo, the two of those guys. It's, it's very cool. What do you think? Very exciting stuff. Always great to have, you know, new faces in Nashville. Love it down there. Tripp's not exactly a new face, but he's certainly an icon. Sure. So, uh, Polestar Awards are also tonight as well, too. Categories like Best Agent, you know, the Bill Graham Town Buyer of the Year, the Promoter of the Year, Best Tour, Creative Video. There's tons of awards going on tonight. Dan is also nominated for tonight. You think you actually have a shot tonight? <laughs> no fucking way. But... <laughs> There's some cool guys in that category. It's kind of just, just be neat to be on that list with them. And we love you. Yeah. Aww, We're rooting love for you, you guys, man. too. It's awesome to lose again. <laughs> not bitter. No, not at all. doesn't sound like it. I want my mommy. Well, we'll wrap it up for the news for right now. Um, why don't we move into um, a, a little bit of a, a surprise guest here. We're going to be joined by Mr. Scott Perry from the New Music Tip Sheet. Also author of Snapchat 101 for a little uh, visit down Music Tech. My name is David Klein. I'm Justin Bieber's tour manager, and I'm on Promoter 101. It's good to have you back. This is your third appearance on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, just trying to, like, look into the future and see what's going on with everything. Um, you know, I mean, I, I tend to, like, you know... Are you wearing spectacles right now from Snapchat? I am wearing spectacles. So with this thing right here, all I have to do is just click a button, and it records for 10 seconds, and uh, it, like, transfers over to Snapchat via Bluetooth. Now, you see the little light indicator shows that I'm actually filming you, so it's not creeping people out like the Google Glass did. And Google Glass was $1,500. These are $1.50. They're great for kids. They're great for Snapchat. And, of course, Snapchat's going to be going public, um, you know, in Wall Street in the next uh, few weeks. So it's going to be interesting to see how they go head-to-head -head with Facebook as Facebook continues to take every single key feature that makes Snapchat Snapchat and plug it into Instagram and Facebook. They um, probably don't know they're doing that. It's probably just an honest mistake. Oh, yeah, just a coincidence. <laughs> no big deal at all. But the crazy thing is um, one of Snapchat's greatest features that's a benefit to everybody in the room are the geo filters. So whether it's the label paying for it, the band paying for it, or you paying for it, you should have a branded geo filter associated with your venues 
so that anybody at that venue, when they post a snap, actually have um, you know, your geofilter on there to show where they are and to brag to their friends. And these aren't like outrageously expensive. We're talking about like 15, 20 bucks for like a day's. Oh my, of, yeah. they're $5, dude, it's yeah. harsh. Yeah, because you can get the Troubadour for four hours for $5 from eight to midnight. Now, Staples Center is always $1,000 whether or not anybody's in there, and that's just the way they've got a fixed price. You cannot get a geofilter for something like the Grammys or Coachella because Snapchat has already blocked those off to sell to corporate sponsors. But as a venue owner, you should at least you'll be investing in $5 a day on Snapchat uh, geofilters so at least the kids have a means to promote you while they're promoting their exciting times at your show. Um, and even if you don't know how to use Snapchat, the funny thing is, since Instagram and Facebook are stealing every single key feature from Snapchat, it's only a matter of time before Instagram offers these very same geofilters on Instagram, where Instagram stories have really taken the, the, the thunder out of Snapchat's growth. You know, uh, Snapchat's always bragged about having 150 million daily active users, and that was a stat they, they, they promoted six months ago. It's not something they're really talking about right now, and there have been reports from outside agency audits showing that uh, traffic to Snapchat has slowed, whether it's because the, um, the autoplay function has stopped from Snapchatter to Snapchatter, or if it's actually like in the, the use of Instagram stories has stanched the growth of uh, the adult demographic moving over to Snapchat because uh, uh, Instagram stories, if you haven't used it, are those little circles on top of Instagram where it shows like live stories that disappear every 24 hours, which is something that is one of Snapchat's key features. So if as an adult, all your friends are on Instagram and you've got this key feature that you would normally use on Snapchat, then why would you go to Snapchat if your friends aren't there? So it's a really challenging piece for Snapchat as they go public, but it's something they have to face. Competition's you know, out there in the real world. Is that a buy recommendation for you on that? <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, really? I, mean, I do not. Uh, I would never recommend buying a stock um, in the public markets unless you're friends and family. And in a situation like that, their valuation is projected to be about $25 billion on top of about a billion in annual revenue. Now, they are growing a lot of billing revenue, um, but um, if they're not growing their, um, their user base, they're going to face the same problems that Twitter had, where, yeah, Twitter's growing their annual revenue regularly because they have a good sales team, but if you're not growing your um, user base, which Twitter isn't anymore, then it's really hard to justify those valuations. So let the stock go public. Let the hype die down. If it drops a little bit, just like Facebook did, and, and Facebook, what, opened up at 40, and then like two months later, it settled around. Yeah. yeah. And now, I mean, you know, Facebook's gone. They, they, they faced the challenge of mobile. They owned it, and now Facebook's gone from 18 to a buck. 30, so not too shabby. So avoid the hype, let the dust settle, get an understanding of what Snapchat is all about. Buy my book, Snapchat 101. Shameless plug. <laughs> well, and in all honesty, this version is six months old and it's already out of date. There's been a lot of changes to Snapchat in the past month alone, so I am revising it. I'll have a new edition out in about a week on Amazon, but we, you know, Dan's got a couple copies here to give away. Yeah, who wants them? We got two. Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Anyway, so anyway, en enough about Snapchat. But the thing is, I'm just trying to like look forward, but also look forward just enough to where you, as a business person, can take advantage of these opportunities. Uh, let me let me cut, cut in here for a second. And ask you about you talked about Facebook for a second. Zuckerberg is speaking in every state in the union this year. Do you see him setting up for a political run in the distant future? Why would anybody ever want to run in politics? I mean, it's like yeah, you want to do your civic duty, but you're just putting yourself up to like be pegged by. It's not what I fucking asked you. Oh, <laughs> if if he wants to, great. God bless him. But you know. 
almost like you've got all the money in the world, you've got all the influence in the world. Why you would want to set yourself up like that? Um, because, I mean, politics is grueling. Even if you're just running for mayor, you might have every, like, ideal in the world of, like, making a positive change for your community, whether it's local or international, but you just face so much opposition from haters and, and, and cock blockers that why would you want to do that? Cock blockers, great. <laughs> Let's talk about Alexandria. What's going on? What's that again? Let's talk about what is, uh, the, the tech. Oh, the, oh, oh Alexa, Alexa. Yeah, Alexa. So, I mean, and so, you know, it's been reported lately that because yeah, Alexa, um, uh, Echo, the Amazon Echo and the Amazon Echo Dot were, like, the number one uh, product, buzz product of the Christmas season, as I predicted back last summer. And um, because of that, it's actually provided um, a traffic boost, not only to Pandora and Spotify, but also TuneIn and iHeart and all these other music streaming services, which has been great for music discovery. But it's so easy to buy that children are actually ordering things without, like, meaning to. Oh my gosh, yeah, they're going to say, Alexa, get me a dollhouse, you know? And, like, so one girl got a $140 dollhouse and, like, a three-pound box of sugar cookies, you know? And, or, God forbid, somebody on the, on the evening news would say, Alexa, you know, buy me a bag of diapers, all of a sudden, you, everybody's Alexa that's turned on, or everybody's uh, Echo or Dot that's turned on is going to buy them a bag of diapers, you know? I would love to see what Luke is telling Alexa to buy. <laughs> Dominoes, usually. Uh, there you go. <laughs> you but, you know, I mean, in the, and in the future, there's no doubt about it, especially with general admission shows for clubs. When you hear a band playing on a streaming service, you're going to be able to say, Alexa, buy me two tickets. Now, how that works... Somewhere Andrew Druskin got hard, right there. <laughs> well, okay, so think about this. And the people in the audience that work for this company don't have to confirm or deny, but let's say in a perfect scenario, you are playing Pandora uh, through your Amazon Echo or Echo Dot. And when one of the acts that you've liked or favorited comes up um, on that, it may give you an option to say, this band is playing at the satellite on uh, Tuesday, February 14th. Would you like to go? And you say, yes, I would like two tickets. And when you say that, it might be synced up to your phone. So all of a sudden, two tickets show up on your phone that can be scanned at the door. So because Pandora has purchased Ticketfly, because Pandora is audio-based and Ticketfly has a great back-end technology, and they have the venture funding to do it, they can build this business out to where you can purchase tickets by voice that's synced up to your Amazon account. And so all you do is pull up a barcode and your tickets are there, whether you print them or whether you show them off at the door. And this can be done with pilot studies, whether it's at a small club here, which I hope it is, or in San Francisco, depending on where you know, Pandora's engineering base is. But I really well, when think it comes to ticketing, it seems like it's probably going to be closer to where Ticketfly's office is. But yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's, I mean, and that's, not, that's not pie in the sky. That is perfectly legitimately possible. Of course, there's a lot of protocol that has to be worked out, like, you know, how is the split going on? How do the tickets appear? Um, how are you? We'll let Andrew figure that out. That's yeah. his job. Speaking of that, what's going on with Pandora and Ticketfly? I don't know. You tell me. I mean, you know, it's like the, the purchase was made. The integration is happening. Um, I'm not like so far on the inside uh, with either promoters or Pandora to say um, how it's working out. But, it's but obviously it must be working because they just did some layoffs of Pandora, but Ticketfly was untouched. Great. Right. And that, that seems like a good thing. And Druskin's going to be on the podcast in a couple weeks, so we got that to look for and probably get his response on what's going on there. But it seems like technology is, they're winning that war. Good, good, good. You know, it's a very challenging space because Pandora's done a really good job with ad sell. 
sales. Um, you know, even despite like all the competition they have from iHeart, who has the advantage of terrestrial radio to push people to that service. Um, you know, even with like the deep pockets that uh, pure streaming services like Spotify have, and Google, and Amazon, and all these other, and of course Apple Music. Did you need less coffee, man? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> but no. And yeah, so in four or five minutes' time, that's the basic stuff. You know, it's like be on the lookout for Alexa voice-enabled ticket purchasing in the next six months, even even if it's only pilot studies, and get to know Snapchat. If not to use Snapchat, then to understand where Facebook is going with their strategies and how you can best promote your shows. What else is going on out there that we need to know about? Oh gosh, you know, that's really the, the best things that are out there right now. Those, those two or three items are just enough. Right the fuck on, man. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jim Rungi, tour manager for Imagine Dragons, and we're on Promoter 101. How you guys doing out there? Yeah. 9.30. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for making it out again. Um, <clears throat> this is the uh, part of our podcast where we typically break down Dan's uh, ramblings and musings on his Twitter account, which he, if you're not following Dan, he's at the Jew on Twitter. Uh, this is kind of the origin for, for Promoter 101. This kind of started uh, as, as you making these rambling tweets and we got of this idea said you know it'd be cool to actually put some of these thoughts down and discover these things so before we jump into what you said last week or in the last couple of weeks on twitter maybe this is a good chance to talk about the origin of this or 16 17 episodes into this now now how did this all come to be well i mean i mean i've always been a smart ass for those of you that know me and twitter just made that easier it's like it's great to voice your it's actually counseling for me. It's like fucking box office included comps again. I mean, paid. Like, all right, tweet it out. Like, everybody responds. It's like, yeah, that happened to me like 17 times last week. Or fucking when an agent like tells you, like, whatever. It's like, yeah, everybody agrees. It's like, oh, okay. And then the agents fight back. And it's like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. It's like the industry's actually like talking back. It's fun. <laughs> it's like conversation started. But it was like, I don't know, it started with a couple tweets, and then we did a panel a handful of years ago at the IAAM, which was uh, pro, it was like entitled Promoter 101, so we used that hashtag because I kind of liked it, and kind of grew from that. Yeah. Well, should we take a second and actually break down some of the things you've said in the last couple of weeks on your Twitter account? Sure, let's see if we can remember yeah, them. Bring them up here. When a venue GM tells you he's not at all flexible, then calls confused when he sees a date confirmed at a competitor's venue. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I love that. We could have made a better deal. Why didn't you say something? I'm like, you just told me you wouldn't do anything. I called your bluff. We're playing the other room. So we got to move it back. It's like, dude, it's announced. But maybe next time you won't be so quick to be like, that's the deal. <laughs> How about this one? When a local public official demands to see an artist play in their market as if the artist has ever heard or cares about them. Yeah, my artists just don't give a fuck about local politicians. Is it like mayors? Like, what are you talking about? No, I mean, you get these things because these venues are owned in a, in a lot of the big arenas and the PACs are owned by the local cities. And so those guys have to answer to their board and that's the count, town council or sometimes the mayor and those guys all want to impress the higher up. So you're doing a show in town where it's somebody that's cool and they're like, yeah, we want to get a picture. Don't they want to meet the mayor? And like, we don't give a fuck about your mayor. We're not going to be in Cleveland again. Fuck you. <laughs> No knocks on Cleveland. Nobody's, nobody's fucking ever heard of that place. <laughs> Stuart Ross is going to come kick my ass now. Talk shit yeah. about Cleveland. Exactly. Uh, this one. When that someone who would never, uh, never offer to buy a cup of coffee suddenly asks for comps. Fucking douche. Buy some tickets. Support the scene for fuck's sake. Oh, you know that guy. Cool. <laughs> 
When you're told you're the first one to be pitched and then learn everybody else is already has offers in. Yeah, this happens to anybody else in the room? <laughs> Spoiler alert, agents sometimes lie. Wow. <laughs> when an agent challenges their own hold for a different act and will not release themselves, but still gets upset about being challenged. This actually happened. And yeah, I still can't wrap my mind around that mind fuck. They were both his dates, and he was yet still upset with me that I couldn't clear his own date that he wouldn't release from me. I no fucking idea how to help that one. I'm not telling you that. Actually, I'll tell you later. <laughs> All right, that, that'll wrap it up for Dan's musings. If you're not following Dan on Twitter, he's at the Jew on Twitter. He's making daily musings and ramblings about the music industry and a good context for learning about some of these unique situations, which Dan will comment on all the time. So why don't we jump into uh, our, our featured interviews today? First, we want to welcome up uh, a legendary agent. He's worked with everybody from The Cure to Joe Satriani to Tedeschi Trucks Band. Why don't we please welcome Entourage Talents, Mr. Wayne Forte. Hey, this is Mark Geiger from WME, William Morris Endeavor Entertainment, coming to you on Dan Steinberg's podcast. You're legendary. You're the only agent that wears a gun holster. That's right. The question is, do I carry a gun? Yeah, we're afraid to find out, but I have a feeling it's settlement one night. I carry a telephone. That's even worse. <laughs> I always figured it was a telex. <laughs> I still have my telex, actually. <laughs> so, Wayne, for those of you in the room and listening to the podcast that aren't familiar with your story, why don't, why don't we talk about your beginnings, where you started at, and, and how things kicked off for you in the music business? Like where I came from? Yeah, let's talk about your first couple of years I see was born in a Malaysian mountain town. Well, I'm the, I'm the, I, listen, I, it's sort of a classic story. I, you know, I was the college concert promoter. In fact, interestingly enough, I was having flashbacks yesterday at the uh, Danny Zalesko session. Is Danny here? He was catching a flight. Okay, so one of the last shows I ever produced in college was Alice Cooper. And I went to school in North Carolina. So I can't tell you. They almost, literally almost drove me out of town for booking the act. And it was everything that Shep and Alice talked about. It was fantastic. I, I lucked into buying an act that I had no idea how I was going to sell the tickets in a town that virtually hardly anybody knew, because it wasn't really popular in the South at that point. And the newspapers took over for me, and they just started printing the frickin' stories and you know, saying that I was out of my fucking mind and I should be arrested and, you know, the uh, ASPCA jumped in because of the whole chicken issue and we sold 20,000 tickets. <laughs> so it worked like a charm. Anyway, so I, that's where I started. I started in, uh, in college and then I uh, took a job in New York, which I was only going to do for a year just to see how things rolled. And, uh, you know, I figured I'd go back to New York work for about a year in the business, get a little feel for it, and then move back south again, because I actually like living in the south. And, you know, that was, I don't even want to say how many years ago, and I, and I never went back. I, you ran through a bunch of the agencies, right? Like, you spent time at ICM and William Morris, and where else? Well, I started at CMA. I, I don't believe I'm familiar with that. Okay, that was Creative Management Associates. CMA and an agency called IFA, International Famous Agency, merged while I was there and became ICM. So that's how I ended up at ICM. So I was, I was the last person in New York that made it through the merger. Everybody else was axed from CMA. 
or moved out of town. You must have been pretty good even back then, huh? No, I was the cheapest guy on the block. <laughs> <laughs> I booked the clubs. I was in the, you know, the last office around the corner, and I don't even know if they knew I was there. So, uh, you know, I made it through the, uh, I made it through the merger. Um, I was at ICM for a couple of years, and then I left there and went to a smaller agency. For, actually, I, yeah, I went to a smaller agency for a year. And I worked in a, an agency called Magna Artists. Now, interestingly enough, at dinner last night, Steve Martin was telling the story because when I left Magna, Steve went to Magna. I went from Magna to William Morris, and I was there for four years. I was a head of the music department my last year, and I left. And when I left William Morris, Steve went to William Morris. So we've we kind of been following each other around the business. So, yeah, so I went from there to William Morris. I was there for four years. And then after four years, one of the agents at William Morris and I... Uh, got friendly. We weren't friendly initially, and uh, we left, and we opened an agency called International Talent Group. That was with Michael? Michael Farrell, yeah. Okay. That, you guys were a big agency, ITG, right? Well, as I said to you last night at dinner, I never thought so. We were, small, we were two guys with two assistants. That's how we started out. We started out For with, those of you that don't know the history, give them a list of acts, and then you tell me that you weren't a big agency. Uh, Genesis, Phil Collins, Pink Floyd, the Cure, Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, David Bowie, <laughs> Billy Idol, uh, Paul Young. Anybody else want to call bullshit? Howard Jones. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we started out as a small agency, and yeah, before when I turned around, uh, one day Michael came into my office and said, "You know, we're pretty big." And I said, "Yeah, we are. We're 16 people. We got a lot of fucking people here." He goes, "No, no, I don't. I don't mean." big people. I see. He said, we're pretty big. I said, what are you referring to? And he said, uh, last year, he, was, he liked to do little things like this. He'd, you know, do, do, I would go home and plan tours. He'd go home and think about things like this. He said, we did more stadium shows last year than any other agency in the business. We did more arena shows than anybody else in the business. And we have more uh, arena and stadium acts at the moment than anybody else in the business. And I looked at him, I said, really? And he said, yeah, look at your fucking books. <laughs> and so that, I, that was the day, and I must have been, yeah, I don't know, 1990, and we'd been in business from 81, that I thought, yeah, I guess so. I guess we're pretty influential. You know, it was just one of those things. I always kept my head down and just did my thing. I never thought about how big we were. I just always wanted to take my act from the club to Shea Stadium or, you know, Giant Stadium. Like, for instance, The Cure. I was telling, who was I telling? Andy, the story last night. Because actually, Andy, Andy, Summers? Sum Andy Summers was an assistant at William Morris when I was there. Uh, and he was one of those guys, when it came in on the floor, I looked and I went, this kid's got something. So I had him secretly, because the assistants weren't supposed to book. And I just said, here, here's an act. Just book some dates for me. Don't tell anybody. And so, you know, he started, you know, booking stuff. So he'd come to me all the time, and I'd give him things to do. That seemed anyway, to work out pretty well for him. Worked out great for him. <laughs> I mean, he actually booked some of the original Cure dates. Uh, I brought one of those. I brought my original Cure root sheet. I think they worked for about $400. So the first show they ever did, I walked into the club uptown in New York, and I thought, okay, let's see what this is going to be all about, because it was a great record, and I chased the act for a while. And there were 25 people in the room. Who's the act? The Cure. <laughs> and I went, I looked and I went, oh, fuck, this is going to be a long road. There's 25 people. But anyway, my point was, so my whole lot in life was to go from there to here. And so, you know, the day we sold out Giant Stadium, 
to me was the success, you know? It wasn't really about how big the agency was. It was like, that was my success. You fo focus a, a, a lot on UKX. I mean, just rattled off a few there. Was there any particular focus? Or, or yeah, well, when we left William Morris, my former partner uh, had uh, Genesis. Uh, Peter Gabriel had just left, so we had right. Peter Gabriel as well. Phil hadn't gone out on his own yet, and he had Steve Hackett, who was the original guitar player in Genesis. So he had the three of them, and he had one or two others. I had... Um, we didn't leave with anything big. Now, everybody thinks that we left with big acts. Okay, Genesis played, I think, maybe one or two cities and stadiums. The rest of the country, they were in arenas. Peter Gabriel was playing clubs. I left, when I left the agency, I had uh, Joe Jackson, who was playing colleges and some theaters. Um, I took The Clash with me, who nobody at William Morris even understood. And I'd only done one tour with them, to, or two tours with them to that point. But again, nobody really understood them. I mean, they were, I thought they were, you know, they would be a huge act eventually. Um, Duran Duran was an act I was working on, but I hadn't signed them yet. In fact, when I left, the manager tracked me down and called me at the new agency, and we signed them. So literally, and I actually, I think I brought the sheet. I might have the sheet from the original agency. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Oh, and well, I wanted to bring it out because of the names of the acts. The point was, we had nothing really big. What happened with the we agency? We had a scrap to, to yeah. pay the overhead, you know, but... But what happened was, what we, what we did was we concentrated, just because of our relationships, uh, we concentrated on the British acts. I had spent a lot of time going back and forth to the UK, so I had some great relationships there. The other agencies were concentrated in the US. And rather than beat our heads against the wall against the other major, against the major agencies, we thought, we had the relationships. We just go where we had them. And uh, from a business perspective, it was a little bit easier because we didn't have to worry about working the acts all the time. We had to do a tour a year, maybe, or every other. So it made it kind of easy because we could come in and out with, with a number of acts and still have time to concentrate and do the business. And so we grew the acts. You grow the acts, you grow the business. You know, it's I mean, I don't think you've really talked about it, but how did the agents, I mean, you guys had Marty Diamond there. How did that agency come to an end? I mean, IGC was huge. What happened? Marty Diamond actually was a great story. Is Marty here? No. Okay. Marty Diamond was actually a great story because he was working at Arista Records. I knew Marty for a long time. He was an agent when he started out of college. Then he worked to work at the Ritz in New York, and he was the assistant buyer, talent buyer. And the Ritz was a, a red-hot club at that point. In case anybody doesn't know, it's Webster Hall now. It was the Ritz. They used to put 2,400 people in there. I think the legal capacity is 1,000. I have no idea how they fit that many people in there. But Big shoehorns, smaller people, um right? Teen, yeah, umpteen shows there at the, at the Ritz. Like, you know, and, the, and the, Ritz, the shows at the Ritz, for anybody that's not from New York or doesn't know about it, the shows would start at 11.30 and go to like 2 in the morning. So you'd show up at 11 o'clock, there'd be nobody there. By midnight, the place was jammed. There was a crowd in the street, and you know, it would go till about 2, 3 in the morning. Um, so Marty worked there for a long time, and then he went to Arista Records. Or actually, he may have gone somewhere in between. Then he was at Arista Records. So I, I had talked to Marty a lot because he was hawking me to sign an act, a couple of acts that they had. So I signed one. One was a, uh, a Dutch act. Um, and uh, anyway, we... we, we, we started talking a lot and getting together and, and one day we had lunch and I just said, Marty, you ever think about coming to the agency business again? And he said, uh, you know, yeah, maybe if the deal's right. So anyway, very long story short, I brought him in. He was a VP at fucking Arista, so I had to pay him a lot of money. I brought him in. My, my partner said, what are you doing? You're crazy. Guy has no acts. You're paying him a crap load of money. And I said, Michael, just, just relax. I'm sure the guys at Paradigm are just really relax. thanking you now, huh? <laughs> just relax. Anyway. 
And uh, he did. So we made it. He came in. We made a trip to the UK together, and we had a bunch of meetings. And I just watched him, and I went, "Poop, this is this is done. I just all I have to do now is sit back and wait." And then to answer your question, it's a very involved story, but um, I just woke up one day and decided I didn't want to do it anymore. That's how the agency ended. You just said, "Fuck it, I'm not going to be an no, agent anymore." No, that's not how it ended. But because I got news I, for you, you're still an agent. That's how I ended the agency. No, I didn't want to do that anymore. But we had come to a point where. Uh, uh, we made a joint venture deal about three or four years before I came to that realization. And um, we were uh, uh, partners. This is an early roll-up situation. It wasn't a roll-up yet, but it was going to be a roll-up. There was a, uh, a, a, corp a public company out of Canada that was putting together an entertainment division. Uh, we were one of the early ins. So they had a, a management company, eventually an agency, a merchandising company, a jingle company, uh, you know, et cetera. They were building, they were building conglomerate. This, this conglomerate yep. that was either going to be go public or spun off or sold. Uh, so we we 50-50 joint venture. So I was running, uh, oh, and then on top of that, we opened an, uh, no, we decided to open an office in Los Angeles after we did that. So I was running the New York office. Uh, I was uh, dealing with the joint venture. Um, I had 42 clients that I, was that, I was, that I had signed, 25 of them I was personally responsible for. I had the staff in New York. We opened an office in LA. We did a joint venture with a small film literary TV co uh, company. Michael moved out to LA. We were running LA. Uh, he was running LA. I was flying back and forth every six weeks to watch our investment. Uh, I flew to London and we made a joint venture deal. It took me two years with an agency over there. So I was overseeing the three offices, the joint venture, my clients, the business, and I just woke up one day and thought, I'm going to be dead. But you're a mogul. I understand that. So I thought, what's the most important thing? Oh, so let me back up. So I'll get into a personal thing, which actually is interesting because somebody brought this up the other day. It's nothing we ever talk about at these things is how this affects your life. I got divorced. I had two kids. They were 11 and 8. I woke up one day, literally, and said, I'm never going to see my daughters again. I get them every other weekend, and I'm never home. So I thought, what's most important? My life and their life. Family. Exactly. So I. So I, you, made, you made a life decision. I made a life decision. You have I walked your daughters in, in your life. I walked in and I said to my partners, uh, my my day-to-day -day partner and my business, you know, the joint venture partners. We've got to restructure this business. I can't keep doing this. Why? We're doing great. We're making a crap load of money. The business is growing. I go, yeah, off my back. We need to restructure. So I spent six months putting a restructure plan together, and I presented it, and they turned it down. So that's when I woke up one day, and I just thought, fuck this. I ain't doing this anymore. So I went in, and I resigned. And I said, I'll maintain my, my relationship, I'll keep my clients, I'll book, but I'm not running the business, I'm not running the office, I'm just going to be an agent. You guys find someone else to run the business. So you they, essentially passed. Yeah. And they said, no way, that ain't going to happen. If, you know, you, you're basically leaving. I said, I'm not leaving, I'll do this. So anyway, they, they basically said, you have to make one choice or the other. Either do what you're doing or you leave. I said, I'll leave. And so I left. And that's when Entourage was born? Uh, six weeks, well, not six weeks, yeah, about eight weeks later, Entourage, well, that was a whole other long discussion that I had to negotiate my way out, because originally I had a non-compete for five years and I couldn't do anything, but I negotiated my way out, and they allowed me to leave and take only six clients with me. That was the deal. So I left, I took six clients with me, I opened up Entourage Town. Uh, ITG stayed together for about a year and a half, too. So it was like Cure, Satriani, who else did you take? I took Cure, I took Cure, Satriani, um, 
tragically hip. Um, let me think. Who else? I don't know, one or, one or two others. Some others came later, but I was only allowed to, the real deal was I was only allowed to call six people if they came, mm. fine, if they didn't, fuck off. I couldn't call anybody else, so I agreed to that. I called six people, four of those people came, and then later some other people came. So I started off with a smaller business. I had more time for my personal life. So you brought your booking sheets, yeah. and if you ever go to Wayne's office, you can see these things before they go to Cleveland, because they're going to wind up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Do you have them with you? Yeah. So after the session, you should come up and be very careful, because they really probably will wind up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But his literal booking sheets from booking the Queen Tour and the Clash and Aerosmith, like on their first club tours from William Morris days, handwritten on what the guarantees were and what the markets were and what the deals were. Yeah. It's, it's Actually, rock and the, roll those history. Are, those are the ICM days. But I have the ICM sheets and I brought the William Morris sheets and I brought the ITG sheets. So. Yeah, so if you get a chance, come look at those things. Like, it's amazing who's in that book, and it's, it really is like, it's something that's going to wind up in the Hall of Fame. It's incredible. Dan just rattled off a ton of amazing acts you've worked with over the years. Who's gotten you the most excited in all that time? Oh, Jesus Christ. The most excited. Oh, my God. There's just too many of them. Somebody always asked me, somebody, I've been asked a number of times, what's the most exciting show you've ever been to? That's like saying, you know, what's the best food you've ever eaten? You know, like... There's so many, but probably one of the most excited I ever was and absolutely feared for my life at the same time was uh, when I saw the clash in London the first time. It was, I looked and I went, and, and all, and this is a great story, because the, all the, the agents that I knew in London and did business with when I went over during those days, and that was like the late 70s, they were like, what are you wasting your time in these fucking acts for? They don't, they, they can't afford to live anywhere. They, they don't have jobs. They can't fucking play. They just sound like shit. And I just said, no, no, there's like an energy happening here, right? So, and I went to see The Clash and I was, they, when they walked out on stage, it was like, oh my God, this is the next big thing. I have to sign this act. I chased him for two years. Um, at the same time, I had to back myself up to the wall because the entire place <laughs> erupted and there were fist fights <laughs> everywhere. And like, I was like, holy fuck, there were skinheads on one side, punks on the other. You know, and I thought, I, I, thought I was going to get killed. Did they, did they break? Uh, yeah, they broke. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's, let's talk about, you book what I would say is the single best live act on the road, bar none now. Tedeschi Trucks is, without a doubt, the best band live on the road. And if you haven't seen them, you're doing yourself a disservice working in this industry, not knowing what I'm talking about. Live, they bring Incredible. it. Incredible. How did that happen? How did you wind up with that? Well, I've represented Derek for 17 years. Um, so I mean, you just got lucky. You booked the kid 17 years ago, and then he got married, and you got a cool act? No, it's more involved than that. Do we have time to tell a story? Yeah. yeah. I'll tell it as quickly as I can. So uh, there's an attorney that, uh, this, this even goes too far back, but there's an attorney who uh, I was friendly with at the time who um, was a partner of my former roommate from college who I put into concert business uh, in the Carolinas because back in the day when I had ITG, um, nobody would book the acts we had in the Carolinas. They weren't interested. So I called my roommate up from college one day, and I, my former roommate, and I said to him, listen, go over to fucking Chapel Hill, uh, get, that, get the small theater, can't, I can't remember the name of it, the like 1,200 seat theater, put it on hold for me, I want to book Joe Jackson. 
And he said, well, how are we going to do that? I said, just don't worry about it. I'll give you the money. It doesn't, just go book it. I think he's going to sell out. He was doing great business up north and out in the Midwest and out west in the colleges. So anyway, he went out. He put the, date, he put the building on hold. He called me back. He said, okay. Um, I said, all right, I'll just tell me what the costs are, and I'll bankroll you. You know, I just want the date to happen. So he said, uh, no, you don't have to do that. He said, I got this friend that I grew up with who's an attorney, and this guy, John, who we went to college with, and then there's this other guy over here, and they're going to put the money up, and we're going to do the show. So very long story short, they put the thing on sale. It sold out. Call me back. Let's have another one. So I gave him the psychedelic furs. It sold out. So they went into concert business. They became, they became a concert promotion company. They did all our acts. This, they ended up doing the stadium acts and everything. And the PS was then everybody started moving into the Carolinas because sure. they realized that this is a lot of business going on here with acts that nobody, you know, before that they were booking Uriah Heep and Deep Purple and, you know, that kind of stuff. So anyway, one of the attorneys from that I, I became friendly with and he became Derek Truck's attorney. He chased me for two or three years. He said, I got from when he was 14, I got this kid. He's incredible. You got to see. So I looked at him. I go, what am I going to do with a kid that's this big, mm. playing with like these 45 year old guys? He can't even get into a bar. Yeah. You know, legally. Um, so he kept to me, but he kept legally. at me. Yeah, legally. So he kept, he kept at me, kept at me, kept at me. Finally, he said, would you just at least help us get us some slots on shows or something? I said, okay, I'll do it. And I did it. And then Eventually, he was, he was 17, he was about to be 18. He goes, I really would like you to take the act on. I said, okay, fine. So I remember him coming in for a meeting. He was 18 years old, came in with the attorney. We actually signed an agency agreement. And uh, I represented him since then. So I've had him since then. Does uh, the name Books Trucks, like being related to him, have any excitement with that when you're first being pitched? No, it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter to me. It was all about the act. Really didn't matter. Who but the connection other. to the almonds there didn't like ring off a bell. Like maybe there's something here. No, no. It was just about him. And the reason I took, uh, well, the reason I got involved originally was the relationship, because that's how most things happen anyway. But then, you know, I thought he's a he's a good player. He's committed. He played a lot. I mean, he was on the road all the time. You know, and I thought, okay, you know, there's something here. It wasn't the fact that it was the almond brother. You know, it wasn't any of that really. And then, and it was the look too. He was a young kid. I guess in all timid. fairness, we've never used that to sell the act. I mean, everybody yeah. knows that he played well, with them. Now, but. to the contrary, because originally when I booked the act, Derek, the Derek Trucks band, we had a clause in the writer that says you cannot relate it to the Allman Brothers. You can't say related to. And when he, when he eventually, he didn't join the band. He was asked to fill in for when they changed guitar players. We also said that you can't say of the Allman Brothers, plays in the Allman Brothers. We, we went entirely the opposite way. We don't want to have anything to do with it because we didn't, I didn't want to build him off the back of the Allman Brothers. He's got to be his own person. I think in the long run it worked. Well, and the fans could find that stuff anyway, the people that know. Exactly, him. exactly. You don't have to put it in people's faces. I don't want people coming expecting to hear Allman Brothers music because he wasn't playing it. He well, didn't play just... any Allman Brothers music. So, <clears throat> try to make it a shorter story. So, he got married um, and I had seen. Susan show up at a show once and sit in and I thought wow like there's magic up there on stage something's happening here so I said to the the, the now manager who used to be the tour manager Blake Budney Blake Budney I said Blake we got to do this we got to put the two of them together well, I don't know there was two different managers two different agents rec different record companies he said I don't know it's it, it may be a good thing maybe not maybe it's not you know whatever he said I, I don't know let's not push it so what eventually happened was we did a tour with the Derek Trucks band and the Susan Tedeschi band. 
as a package. So I went out and covered a lot of shows, and every night when they played together, it was like, it was like fucking magic. I kept saying, no, this is... So I pushed it more, I pushed it more. A couple of years later, we did something called Soul Stew Revival. I don't know if anybody remembers that. And that was the Derek Trucks band with Susan and her sax player. So that was like this Mach 1 kind of thing. So we did a tour of that, and it was good, but it wasn't great because it wasn't like their band. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I don't want to use it as an example, but it's like, you know, it's you and a partner, but it's all his shit. It's like, how much are you, how much are you in, you know? You're in, but you're not totally in because it's not everything of yours. So after that was over, kept pushing it, I wouldn't give up. And finally, I said, let's just sit down and have a conversation about it. Let's have a meeting. So we ended up sitting down at lunch, the four of us, and had a conversation. I said, I think this could be magic. I think we put this new thing together. If you're committed, I'm committed. It's like a five to seven year project. I don't think it can happen any sooner. I think it'll be three to get off the ground. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm all in. All you have to do is say, go, and I'm ready. And so they said, okay, let's do it. We'll build it from the ground up. I said, fine. And so they spent the next you know, three or four months flying musicians in, uh, you know, doing, uh, you know, playing with them, having sessions, and to, they chose a band. So it was the first time that it was actually their project together. And they put this band together, and the concept of it we built around was no great shakes, no surprises for some people, for others they may be, but we, we, we built it around Mad Dogs and Englishmen and Delaney, Bonnie, and Friends. It was going to be the combination of both, the husband and the wife, with a fucking circus going on around them, you know? Like musicians and things happening and whatever, which is what it is. I mean, it, I mean it's not a circus, but I, you know, they got, there's 12 people on stage, uh, there's 22 people traveling, which isn't big for big tours, but it's big for theater tours. And, um, and there's people sitting in all the time. Like they go into towns and, you know, you've done shows, so you know. No, they're amazing. The guests come in, we bring guests in when we do, you know, we, we built the New York show from, which is a whole other story from one to six nights now. So we got six nights and we have guests show up and we have people sitting in and we... Yeah, it becomes a destination thing. And the band is just amazing. It's never the same show twice. The whole concept was to build something that's totally based on music. It's musical. <clears throat> it's not to do with any flat, you know, it's no, there's no big show. There's no, you know, big smoke and lights and all the rest of it. It's all... It's, it's not that the production music. doesn't exist though, because there is real there is production. production but, yeah. Yeah. but it's built around the music. The production came second. I don't want to cut that short. I've, it's an amazing story, but I want to get yeah, to Charlie yeah. before we get cut off. But can you hang out with us for a little while? I'm here. Cool. From Stateside Present, we want to bring up Charlie Levy from Arizona. Please give it up. Hey, Harlan Fry here from Atlantic Records, sitting with my good buddy Dan Steinberg, Promoter 101. Let's go. Not only has Charlie never been to Polestar before, but this is his first panel, and he's coming out to actually speak, so be easy on him. And you had me follow Wayne. How can I follow Wayne? What'd you do to me? You got some shoes to fill. I know. Holy moly. Um, what so, do you want to know? Well, let's, let's start with the same, same kind of question we started with Wayne here. What, what, what was your start? Where, where, what's your history? What's your background? Sure. So I grew up... Uh, outside of New Orleans and sort of uh, one of those guys that went to every show I could go to. And then I uh, went to school at Arizona State University and started to work for the uh, booking shows for the uh, concert team over there. And um, 
Then Danny Zalesko from Evening Star Presents hired me while I was in college to uh, start working with him. And then I did that for a few years, and about three years, and was a talent buyer there, and then decided to do it on my own. And what was the first gig with Danny? What were you doing? Uh, I was working at school, and he asked me to be the, a runner for a Paul McCartney stadium show. Your first fucking show was McCartney? First show. And it was, uh, it was like a four-day job. I took the whole week off of school. I thought it was like the hottest shit ever. All my friends hanging out with the crew, living life, big head, you know, walking around crazy. And, How'd um, that work out for you? Well, I mean, that's, every time you do something new, be it your first job, opening your first club, your first big promoted show, you mess up a lot and you <laughs> learn from that. And I've been fortunate enough to mess up a lot and then get lucky. And uh, I'm sensing there's more here. There's more here. So it's, it's right, they're trying to sell the show. So it's in a trailer and Danny's there and Laura, who was like her, she's in her 30s and she was a spunky office manager. And they go, Charlie, we need all your float. It's like thousands of dollars with receipts from the whole week. And I can't find it at all. I lost it. And I have to go in and I'm just like shaking and I'm just like, you know, and the lesson I learned was, you know, get your shit done work hard, and then have fun, not slack the whole time. And I just remember her looking at me and going, I either want $2,000 or $2,000 worth of receipts now. And I had to go, like, go to the bank, and you know, I was flipping out, but. Oh, you pulled the money? No, it worked out. Someone found it, and um, I ended up dating that, the, the office manager for three years, and we lived together. So it all worked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the end Bad of the day, he got laid. But uh, it all worked out at the end. So that was kind of like my first big show uh, that I worked for Danny, and I worked for about three years, and, and then I started to promote shows on my own. Yeah, your philosophy is a little bit different than most people's, and I, I find it fascinating because we do a lot of shows everywhere, and you have a very different model. I, you know, I've always been a fan of those, like, little Italian restaurants where like the owners like sweeps the bathroom and like makes everything small and perfect. And I love club shows. Like I really think you have, you make a difference. Like if the bigger the show, you know, if you're an arena show, they're going to have everything on their catering rider. We always, if you do book a band that's making 500, a thousand bucks a night and you get every little thing on their catering rider, bar none, they'll come up and say, thank you. You know what I mean? We did a Dave Bazan Page of the Lion show years ago, and he came up to me and said, you're the first promoter that got everything on our rider. And it means so much. And like, when our team does shows, if, we, if the band doesn't say on stage or to us off stage, it's the best night of the tour, we failed. And but that's the vibe you, normally, too. You you can, but in rep. club shows, you can do that. You know what I mean? You have that, you have that, uh, power to really make things special. And that's why, like, we do 550 shows a year last year. You know what I mean? It's, it's super fun. Bowling clubs? No, we, we, we move up, you know what I mean? So we'll move up. We, we own two clubs, and then we'll, we're opening an 1,800-seat venue. And then the next step is Comerica, and we work with Live Nation a lot there, and then we do some arena stuff, so. You told Dan and I that your goal was to make the Crescent Ballroom in Phoenix the best room in the country. You think that's just a continuation of what you're doing here and what you just talked about? Yeah, I mean, that's what, that's, that's what we try. And so when bands, there's nothing better than when 
a Walk the Moon or, or um, Jeff Magnum like, can do big numbers or Dr. Dog and they do two nights in a row because they like the rim so much. Super, like, that's what I live for. Now, you told us that you'd never been to CAA and you'd only been to William Morris once. Are you actively avoiding agents? You know, I'm not really good at this stuff. And, like, I've been, you know, Danny and Tom LaPena and Terry are this big, you know, they kind of have a big personality. You, Dan, I, follow, I followed Dan around today or a couple of days ago with, like, a notepad to see how he works the room. I learned so, how to work like, the room I'm from so Wayne and Bill that. Silva, by the way, actually. <laughs> if you get a chance to watch them work a reception, like at the awards, if you go, have your eyes on Wayne. He glides through the room. It's amazing. <laughs> so my whole thing is just take care, you know, take care of what you do and really focus down on what you do. And then it takes a longer time then people kind of will get to know, you know, that you do, you do it well and, and just kind of focus on your world and not worry about anybody else. That makes sense. How many shows did I'm you... no Wayne Forte, though. <laughs> There's only one Wayne Forte. Um, how many shows did you do last year? We did like 560. So are you able to carry that same philosophy up from the clubs into Comerica and all these bigger rooms that you're talking about building through your market? I mean, we're building the 1800 seat that'll be open in August, and you know, we're in the building process now. We're trying to make it the best club we can, you know. Well, and then, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. There's already an 1800 seat in the market, right? Because Tom's got one. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be competing, and you've taken on a partner in the venue in that venue to do that, right? Um, it's not a. I've been, I'm really. I've been knowing the Live Nation guys since Evening Star because it's Terry and Mary and those guys. Terry Burke. Yep. And. Um, it makes sense to partner with someone who brings something extra to the table that I don't bring. So we're, we're, we're finalizing a deal to make a partnership between the two of us. So will they be involved in the Crescent too or just the new room? Just the new room. It's the Van Buren? The Van Buren. And it opens? August 1st. Who's we, the need first to open, oh, we don't have anyone, Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they uh, actually you charge a little bit more for the opening night, don't you, Wayne? Yeah, well, definitely. Double for, double for the opening night. <laughs> August 1st. Is the opening August Yeah. Does it work so, with the routing? Good. I'm just thinking. <laughs> Mine's going. Mine's going. Wheels are turning. Okay, so some of the agents have been very loyal to you. As the, in a lot of cases, the people that own the bar get that show, but they don't move the acts up. You have not only broken the acts in your room, but you promote them on the bigger level. How do you, why do you think the agents have been so loyal to you on the, as they move the acts into the bigger rooms? I, I have no idea. I mean, I don't think about <laughs> that stuff. You know, it's like I said, we just put our head down, do our job. And then if we don't, I'm not, I never get upset if we don't get shows, I don't get the call. If you, I just feel like if you work hard, do your thing, and people want to work with me, great. If they don't, they don't. You know, I don't get upset when another promoter gets a show or, I, and could 95% of the time we work with a the band, they'll, they'll, be, they'll keep with us to the next level. So it doesn't happen that often, but if it does, it does. And so be as long as you need to take care of yourself, you know, take care of your business, don't worry about anything else. So that's sort of my thing, you know. It's all about intentions. This is Andrea Johnson from ICM Partners, and you're listening to Promoter 101. This is uh, my favorite part of the interview. Every once in a while, we, uh, we've never done it on the podcast, but we're in Polestar. It's kind of a fun game that I like to bring back. I like to call Truth or Patron. For those of you that know the game, we have a special guest bartender today. Tour manager for such acts as Emperor of the Sun, Black Keys, and Imagine Dragons, Mr. Jim Rungi is with us. Give it up for Jim. 
If you don't know the rules, here's how it goes. We're going to ask each of our panelists a question. If they don't like the question, which might be a little harder than anything they've gotten so far, they can take the shot as a mulligan, moving on from the question. Or they can answer the question leaving the shot. Of course, they could be a true badass and answer the question and do the shot, because I believe this pollster, a live audience would reward them for that. Am I right, pollster? <laughs> now, of course, I would never ask them to do anything that I wouldn't do myself first. So I will take the first shot, Jim, if, if I may. <clears throat> oh, that is Patron. I thought this was water. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Polestar. Cheers. Okay, I believe, where's Scott? Oh, Scott he had, left. He had a bounce. Dick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And Dave had a bounce, too. It's all right, we got more booze then. Yeah, perfect. We got people to find. Okay, Charlie, you work with some of the biggest agencies. Who is the single best agency out there? Are you kidding me? Do you want me to, like, stop now and, like, retire and get fired? <laughs> who is the best agency? Who is, who is the single best agency and, on top of that, the single best agent? Oh, my God. <laughs> is Brent Steinberg still an agent? He sold me my first show. He's never sold me a show ever, but he showed me Untouchables in uh, college. Give me the shot. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I won't say any agencies, please. <laughs> Wayne, do, we have, do we have more than one question? Because that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I need I should, Absolutely. Have come, I should have a few of these before the panel. <laughs> we got the full bottle. We can go. Wayne, have you ever been tempted to poach an act from another agent? If so, who? Who the act or who the agent? Yep. I'll take the shot. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, I, I didn't want to leave you out, Luke. If you could get rid of any one competitor, no questions asked, who wow. would it be? Uh, well, seeing as my artists want to collaborate with a lot of other companies and I have to deal with those managers every day, I probably should take a shot here, I think. So <laughs> I, got, I got no answer for that. Red light. Let's say red light. <laughs> red light, all right. Jim, not so fast. Don't go anywhere. What's with the fucking suits? You're fucking tour manager. I have a philosophy. If you can't be professional, look professional. And besides, yeah, besides you, you don't want to see what this is hiding, so it's just camouflage. And he's going to do the shot anyway. Give it up for him, ladies and gentlemen. What's Dan's question? Dan, what's your favorite room to go into? What's your, if you had one room, what's your favorite room? My favorite room in the entire country? What's your favorite room to promote a show in? I like the Levitt Pavilion in Denver. I'm a fan of it. 7,500 seats <laughs> opening up July 19th. <laughs> just, just zero shame from you at any point. All right. What's your favorite room in Tucson? Oh, that's easy. I love the Rialto Theater. Hey, Curtis! Yeah. <laughs> Correct answer. Another shot? Give it, yeah, Charlie wants to get drunk. Get, give Charlie some drinks. And Bill Kittle wants one, too, while he's typing through this entire fucking thing. Luke? Sure. My favorite... What? Go. <clears throat> Why don't we uh, uh, just 
take a moment to thank both Wayne and Charlie for being up here today. This is uh, great. You guys were awesome. So we got about um, uh, 10 or so minutes left uh, here in the room. We want to open up for the first time here some live questions. So for any one of the, the people up here on the panel, uh, Jeff White, I believe, is going to be running around with an, an actual microphone. <laughs> just, uh, just stand up, say your name, say your company, uh, ask away, but make sure you speak directly on the mic. That's recording our podcast as well, too. Who's got a question? Wow. All right. The internet. Rick Farrell up front. You get a shot of uh, tequila if you ask a question. Yeah. Rick Farrell, ICM. Question for you, Dan. How many shows are you up to uh, per year now? And how the fuck do you have time to do this podcast every week? <laughs> I have a really good partner that somehow takes none of the credit for any of the stuff we do and lets me take all of it. And uh, do, do you know, how many shows do we do? Do you have any idea? Six, okay, 600 sounds like a good number, yeah. <laughs> I, I know that we did 73 in uh, September, so I guess extrapolate that out. That was the only month I took time to count because there was a night that I had to settle eight shows. And Jason was covering Straight No Chaser at the Ryman that night, and the Ryman's a pretty particular show because the acts are there and the manager's there and the agent's there, so it takes a lot of time to host and then still try to settle the show. So it was really the only thing he could do while he was in the room, so I had to settle everything else that night. And between his load and my load, it was just like an amazing amount of shows, and I was just counting on the time changes in the different time zones to like work in my benefit. But yeah, that was the month 73, I think, so yeah, 600. How many airline miles do you have? Dude, I'm going to London twice this year for free. It's awesome. I'm going to see Stone Roses at Wembley because Straight No Chaser sings so well in so many cities for us. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay, this is shocking, but very cool. Thank you so much for joining us. That's, that's, this is it for episode 17 from Motor 101. Thank you to our live audience here at Polestar Live with the JW Marriott. Next week, we're going to be joined by WME's Mark Geiger uh, from the world of production. Mr. Jim Rungi is going to be back on the podcast, so please tune in. With Dave Klein, who's uh, currently out with Justin Beaver, so that should be good. Uh, the Promoter 101 World Tour, as Steiny's calling it, is, is continuing. Uh, after here, we're going to be at ILMC. That's over in London on March 9th. Uh, at South by Southwest, we'll have Steve Martin as a guest, so come down and have some barbecue and talk some shit with us. In April, April 19th, we're going to be at CMW interviewing UTA's Jack Ross and Elliot Lefko. Uh, and coming up on the podcast in the next couple weeks, we've got some amazing things. Tom Windish, Andrew Druskin, Andrea Johnson, Jamie Adler, Rick Greenstein, and so many more. We've got some exciting things coming up. So if uh, you have any thoughts about the podcast or you want us to interview somebody, please, we want to hear your feedback. You can email us at steiny at promoter101.net. And you can follow us on Twitter at WLukePierce or at the Jew. And if you subscribe, please be sure to subscribe to Promoter 101 to wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we're doing, please tell some friends about it. We want to hear from you either way. This is Dave Brooks with Amplify Media, and I will be on Promoter 101. Ooh. Ba -da -ba -ba.